This is episode 226 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. That Shakespeare Life is made available completely free and without any commercials, thanks to the support of listeners just like you. Explore all the benefits of being a patron and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. And that creature has huge wings, probably back legs as well. And it flies through the air and spouts fire. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When William Shakespeare talks about dragons in his plays, he mentions these creatures as fire-breathing, flying, cave-dwelling, night-stalking, fearsome fighters in over 20 references across his works. In today's interview, we're going to explore the real history of dragons in Shakespeare's lifetime by asking whether there were real creatures that could have been defined as dragons, similar to how rhinoceros and narwhal were called unicorns. Here to share with us the popular legends about dragons and the place of these creatures in the general pop culture mindset of the Elizabethan era is our guest and author of Dragons and Their Origins for English Heritage, Caroline Larrington. Caroline Larrington is a fellow and tutor in medieval English at St. John's College, Oxford, and professor of medieval European literature at the University of Oxford. She researches widely in Old Norse Icelandic medieval, particularly Arthurian literature and medievalism. She's the author of The Land of the Green Man on Place in British Folklore and Winter is Coming, a book on Game of Thrones and medieval history. Her 2015 BBC Radio 4 series, The Lore of the Land, is still available online. We'll place a link to this interview as well as more information on Caroline in today's show notes. Hello, Caroline. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Cassidy. Previously on That Shakespeare Life, we spoke with a naturalist who described the grass snake as a good contender for a real-life animal that Elizabethans would have called a basilisk. There was a lot of overlap in the natural habits and behaviors of that snake, which matched the stories and folklore about basilisks. Understanding that context about legends and that many of our folklore are often based in some kind of fact, I wonder if this naturalism extended to dragons, where there might might have been a real animal that funded or provided the foundation, I think, for what we think of as a dragon. Caroline, are there real animals that can be identified as what Elizabethans would have referred to as a dragon? It's hard to really identify anything big enough that Elizabethans might have been aware of. One suggestion that has been made in the past is that maybe Elizabethans or early modern people might have come across when they were plowing or digging foundations of houses, dinosaur bones. And they might have thought that these were the relics of dragons. Another suggestion that's been made is that people who excavated you know, for the same kinds of purposes, agriculture or building, people who excavated former battle sites and came across a whole lot of human bones 
might have thought that this was where the the dragon had lived and had been feasting on these bodies and left the bones behind, or that dinosaur bones were themselves the relics of dragons. And people have often thought it's really quite suggestive, the connection between dinosaurs, you know, something huge and lumbering as a kind of reptilian and dragons. But of course, you know, they, they couldn't have ever existed in the same universe. And there doesn't seem to be any particular connection between places where dinosaurs have been excavated and at the same time, the places where we do have legends about dragons, because those legends are usually particularly associated with places and they don't just don't correlate at all, either with battlefields or with with later fossil finds. Well, when we're exploring dragons, whether or not they're based on real animals, tell us about the ones that, that we know from legend. What kind of dragons can fly in the air, for example? Well, we have two different kinds of dragons. So let's start with the ones that fly in the air. And they're rarer than you think. And I guess it's because of... of Modern adaptations, you know, like Game of Thrones or or Tolkien, have really taken up those flying dragons. That that may be the first kind of dragon that we think of. Um, and those kinds of dragons are called fire drakes. Drake is from the the Latin term draca, meaning dragon, and that was borrowed into Old English very early. So we have we find it almost as soon as we find literature. And that creature has huge wings, probably back legs as well. And it flies through the air and spouts fire. So it's quite a frightening kind of creature to imagine. It's a bit like an, a, an aerial bomber, let's say, it's something that can completely destroy human habitations. So there's that kind of dragon. Then there's a more folkloric dragon, in a sense, which doesn't fly. It creeps around the place on its four legs. It doesn't have wings and it spits poison. And that dragon is one you can live beside maybe a bit more easily than a, a flying dragon. You can give it maidens if that's necessary for it to eat. You, it likes to eat cattle as well. And it lurks in habitats where it's not coming up against humans all the time. So they're a more kind of livable dragon, if you like. In Shakespeare's Henry VIII, he writes about a creature called a fire drake, saying that, quote, that fire drake did I hit three times on the head and three times was his nose discharged against me. He stands there like a mortar piece to blow us, end quote. So, Caroline, is the fire drake... It is actually a type of dragon. Is that what Shakespeare's writing about here? That's right. It's a kind of fire dragon. And here Shakespeare's making the comparison between a piece of artillery, something like a big cannon, and the dragon. And, of course, normally with a fire dragon, it's quite hard to get close enough to whack it on the head. But you can imagine the interaction of a warrior smiting the dragon on the head and the dragon snorts out fire in response. And then you hit it again and again. And so this particular comparison is exactly the idea of what it's like if you're getting up and fighting with a, a fire dragon and the kind of backwards and forwards between the dragon and the warrior. So what about dragons breathing fire? Are the fire drakes also the ones that do this? Yeah, they're the ones that breathe fire. There are some, there's some stuff about some early dragons which both breathe fire and spit poison. 
But the fire drake is the one that's much more like a, a cannon, if you like. You can imagine it lying on the ground and just shooting flames out of its mouth, just like a cannonball. And that would be the kind of thing when Shakespeare's audience was thinking about fire drakes. If they weren't thinking about them wheeling through the sky, then it would be like having a, a big piece of artillery shooting at you. Caroline's article for English Heritage about dragons references a dragon sighting that took place in 793 in Northumbria, England. Caroline, who reported this dragon sighting and what was it they saw? Well, we'd really like to know who it was who saw those dragons. We learn about it from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is a history of events in England before 1066 and the Norman invasion. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, though, began to be written down in the 870s. So anything that was earlier than that had to be sourced from kind of oral legends. So somebody in Northumberland saw something and it was incorporated into the Chronicle as being a sign that this was the beginning of the great season of Viking raids. And in, in fact, that very year, the Vikings raided the monastery at Lindisfarne and destroyed it completely. And the sighting of these dragons was said to be a, an omen that this kind of terrible fortune was on its way. Our best guess is that what was seen was actually a kind of comet which would look very much like a fire dragon in some ways. You can imagine it's the, the comet with its tail moving through the sky in kind of fiery sight and red. And it may be that the comets have something to do with, with the particular idea of the fire dragon as one kind of dragon, different from the kind of creeping dragon, which is maybe a bit more like a big water snake. Were there any dragon sightings reported during Shakespeare's lifetime? I've looked into this to see if I could find anything, but I haven't been able to, to track anything down. My sense is that in Shakespeare's time, dragons are slightly in a, an uneasy place. And up until the beginning of, of the rediscovery of different kinds of knowledge in the, the Renaissance, people, I think, believed in dragons not that they expected to bump into one every day, but you would know someone who knew someone whose uncle had seen a dragon. And you had a pretty good idea of what they looked like. But by the time you begin to get a more scientific approach to the natural world, you get a sense that in Shakespeare's England, people kind of liked the idea of dragons, but they didn't necessarily think that they actually existed. They were more kind of useful to, to think with. And it's in this time, of course, that dragons, the appearance of the dragon gets a bit more standardized as people begin to put them in their coats of arms. And you have different kinds of dragons. You have the wyvern or you have dragons rampant or dragons cushioned, whether they're standing on their hind legs and holding your shield or whether they're lying along the top of it. And so the idea of what a dragon looked like, kind of scaly and not necessarily with wings, becomes a bit more standardized at that point. And so my guess is that, that Shakespeare's audiences mostly would think that dragons were the kind of thing that you weren't really likely to encounter, but they liked the idea of them and they're quite good to think with. Not unlike today, I think. I certainly think dragons are cool and fun to think with. So what were the general attributes of dragons or perhaps even famous dragons that Shakespeare's audience would have been most familiar with? 
The kinds of dragons they probably knew most about, apart from the fire drake that we've talked about, would be some of the local dragons. And in the 17th century, so a little bit after Shakespeare's time, you begin to get chapbooks, which are kind of cheap printed pamphlets, if you like, telling stories or songs or ballads about notable creatures or notable events. And we have some material about some local dragons. And one typical one is the dragon of Wantley, who is one of these poison-spitting four-legged dragons who lurks in um, near a, a river, I think. And he has such strong armor that he's very difficult to kill. And this is part of, of contemporary thinking about dragons, that they have a weak spot, but you have to know where it is. And quite often when um, early modern heroes are trying to kill the dragon, they have to find some kind of special contraption. So maybe, and in the case of the dragon of Wantley, uh, a knight called um, Moor of Moor Hall got a very specially pointed set of boots manufactured because he knew that the only place that the, the dragon was vulnerable was, to put it politely, underneath its tail. And so he delivers a mighty kick to the dragon and the dragon expires saying, ah me, if only I had uh, had protected my tail properly. But in some other stories, you have knights who or, or warriors who know that really the dragon is so armoured that you need something like a very long spear with fire on the end. And then as the dragon gapes its mouth open to swallow you, if you're quick enough, you can shove your, your spear with the flaming, sometimes it's a flaming wheel because um, you don't want the dragon to just blow your flames out. So you have to have something quite substantial that's flaming. And if you can thrust that down inside the dragon, that can kill it. But of course, to get that close to the dragon, you've got to have something which will protect you against all that poison that it's spitting out. So there would be, in Shakespeare's England, an idea that dragons are really hard to kill. But if you have the right kind of scientific know-how or you have a kind of technological device, you can, you can see them off. But also that you've got to be pretty well armoured yourself. And so those are the dangers of dragons. But what were dragons doing? Well, we have the idea that dragons like to sit on hordes of treasure. And so there's quite a strong association with dragons and gold hordes that um, if you have a, a a mound of treasure that's left unattended, a dragon would show up and sit on it. These are more often the flying dragons, but some of the, the creeping dragons also are very fond of gold. And they don't do anything with the gold. They just guard it. And if you want to take the gold from them, you're going to have to kill them. Otherwise, they come out and are predators and they destroy particularly cattle. So you don't want one anywhere near your farm. And if you have a dragon in the vicinity, particularly if you're expanding agriculture away from villages and farms that are well established into more marginal areas, that's where you might find a dragon. And then you need to get someone to come and sort your dragon out. And in the medieval period, if you can't get a knight to do that, um, quite often you could call upon a saint. But obviously, with the religious changes that followed the Reformation in Shakespeare's England, you would not think that saints were very helpful 
in this regard. You might be aware of some of the stories about saints, but it's not something that since the, the cult of the saints is something that's very much repressed in Shakespeare's time, you wouldn't make much play with that idea that a saint can be called in to deal with the dragon. Now, you alluded to this earlier, but famously, dragons are a symbol of whales with a large red dragon featured prominently on their flag. How did a creature that is so destructive and known for being something we want to run off and not have a, have around, a dangerous, enormous pest, essentially, how did that become a symbol of nobility and national pride? Well, that's a very ancient story indeed, and that goes back to the writer Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was the Bishop of Monmouth in his um, latter years. He was somebody who knew English tradition and Welsh tradition because he was himself born in Wales, and he also wrote in Latin. And in the years sort of 1138 to 1140, he wrote an enormous text called The History of the Kings of Britain. And this is was a sort of medieval bestseller. There are over 250 copies of it extant. And in this, he includes a story, which is the origin of this red and white dragon business. And it's a story which involves the enchanter Merlin, better known, of course, as King Arthur's tutor and helper. But before Arthur is even conceived of, a previous king of Britain, Vortigern, conceives of a plan to build a huge tower in Snowdonia, in the mountains in North Wales. And he has his masons building the tower and they're making some progress by day. But every night there's a kind of earthquake and the tower falls down. And he summons all his wise men and asks them why it is the tower falls down. And clearly they don't really know. But they say that if the the stones can be fixed together with mortar that contains the blood of a, a man that has no father then or no known father, then the tower won't fall down. And so they cast around and they tried to find somebody who has the reputation of having been born by some kind of mysterious agency. And they find Merlin, whose father is, in fact, as it turns out, a demon. And Merlin is brought along to the, the tower and interrogated. And he admits that his father was a demon, but also that the wise men are completely wrong. And the reason why the tower keeps falling down is because underneath the tower is a great pool. So they dig down and they find the pool. And Merlin says, now drain the pool. And when they drain the pool, they find, just as Merlin had told them, that there's a red dragon and a white dragon that live in the pool. And every night they fight. And the energy and viciousness of their fight is what makes the tower fall down. And so at that point, Vortigern is quite satisfied and doesn't kill Merlin. I think he abandons his building project. And Merlin identifies the red dragon as the British and the white dragon as the Saxons who were invading England from time to time at that point. They're beginning the, the Anglo-Saxon invasion that, that, that really kicks off in the, the fifth century. And so the Welsh seized upon the red dragon, Idry Goch, as, you, as they say in Welsh, to be their symbol as a kind of resistance against the English. And so that's where the red dragon comes from. And so, yes, it is a kind of pest, but the dragon is also seen, as you said, as a beast of some nobility. 
And that's why it's popular in coats of arms and so on. It, it resists other animals. It's brave and tough. And the lion is perhaps the only animal that re can really match a dragon when it comes to fighting. So you can see why a, a country that feels itself somewhat under threat with, first of all, the Angles and the Saxons coming, and then in Geoffrey's own time, it was the Norman French who were pushing into Wales, that they seized upon this symbol as representative of their country as a kind of sign of resistance. I think the fact that the king was trying to impose his tower on the landscape, but he couldn't. The tower just kept falling down because of the, the resistance of, of these Welsh creatures underneath the, the tower is quite significant for that kind of political meaning that the red dragon has. I know that we would love to explore more about dragons from Shakespeare's lifetime and the ones that are mentioned in his plays. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore the history of dragons further? Well, there's the English Heritage website um, piece, which I wrote that you've mentioned already. And there's also a related podcast called Here Be Dragons. But one of the best books about dragons, I think, is Jacqueline Simpson's A Book of British Dragons. Quite old now, but really comprehensive. And she has all kinds of dragons, including some quite comic dragons, dragons which can be sated by giving them a huge sticky pudding, for example. And there's one particular dragon that that swallows this pudding, which is so heavy. It's a dragon that lives in a in a pond. And when the hero stuffs the, the pudding down its throat instead of you know, a fiery sword or a, some other device, the dragon just sinks like a stone and can never come up again. So it's a warning against eating too much dessert, I think. So Jacqueline Simpson's book is very good. And there's a new book, too, just out from Oxford University Press by Daniel Ogden called The Dragon in the West. And that seems to be a pretty comprehensive history of dragons from the very earliest period all the way across Europe. So it's not just about British dragons that Shakespeare would knew, but no, but European dragons more generally. We will place links to all of these resources in the show notes for today's episode, along with pictures and images of creatures like the Waven and the Fire Drake. Uh, so make sure you stop by the show notes to see these resources and more about dragons. Now, Caroline, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, the Desert Island Disc question. Well, I have been agonizing about this quite a lot, I think. And I've thought of all kinds of books. But in the end, I think I'm going to go with George Eliot's Middlemarch, which is a fantastically compendious Victorian novel about uh, a community where the railway comes. And it is just has several different plot strands running together, a heroine who doesn't really understand herself but, but finds herself, and all kinds of comedy and tragedy mixed in it. And I can always reread Middlemarch, so I think that will keep me happy. I think that's a good choice for your deserted island, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? What I'm doing at the moment, actually, is just finishing up a book about the reception of Old Norse myths in modern culture. And in fact, that, not surprisingly, has some dragons in it, as you might expect. 
And so I'm just finishing that up. It's a, a popular book and it's going to be coming out in the spring next year. It's got over 100 illustrations, obviously not just of dragons, but of all kinds of other things as well. And so that's something which I'm really looking forward to, to seeing being published and being able to go out and talk about to various people. Yes, that sounds very exciting. We'll look forward to seeing that come out. And you can find links to Caroline's work in the show notes for today. So if you want to follow along on her websites to see when that book uh, is published, make sure you check out the show notes to find those. Caroline Larrington, thank you so much for being here and walking us through the history of dragons for Shakespeare's Lifetime. This is a very fun and exciting conversation. And I thank you for being here to share it with us. It's been great fun. Thank you for inviting me. If you enjoy the show you've heard today, please let us know about it by leaving us a comment and a rating on the listening platform you're coming to us from today. Rating and reviewing the show lets other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on Caroline and direct links to the resources she recommends you use to learn more about dragons. You can also find images and pictures of primary documents and museum artifacts and all kinds of tidbits that we've dug up going into today's episode packed into the show notes for today. Find all of these things and explore dragons further at CassidyCash.com slash episode 226. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP226. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. That Shakespeare Life is made available completely free and without any commercials, thanks to the support of listeners just like you who sign up to support our work as patrons. If you love the history you learn about here each week and want to join a community of listeners who love Shakespeare history just as much as you do, then consider being a part of our membership community on Patreon. Patrons who support our show get access to our Shakespeare film library full of documentary shorts, video versions of the podcast, and three-minute animated plays, along with digital downloads of maps and artwork that coordinate with the show, as well as access to our monthly Shakespeare book club and exclusive tickets to our live virtual tours, where we go on Shakespeare-related history tours of places like Kenilworth Castle and Stratford-upon-Avon. There's tons of fun things to find in our That Shakespeare Life patron community, and you can explore all of these benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.